Two blocks north of the shoppers in London's bustling Oxford Street, Chinese Buddhists make offerings of vegan food as they have for centuries. Afterwards, they'll gather downstairs for a veggie meal. But when Buddhism entered China, it faced a set of Confucian family values that absolutely opposed the very idea, central to Buddhism, of monasticism. In the Middle Ages, across Eurasia, from Marseille to Kyoto, there are different religions led by monastic orders who abstain from flesh and hope to escape from the cycle of reincarnation. European heretics who reject this sinful world, the abstemious elect of the lost Manichaeans, following the same path as the Buddhists east into Central Asia. In Europe and the Middle East, these face the great monotheistic religions of Christianity and Islam. Their abstention from flesh itself can be grounds for suspicion. Whether you happen to be a famed Islamic preacher in Basra or a peasant refusing to kill a chicken in 13th century France. So across medieval Eurasia, it's a challenging few centuries for vegetarianism. We'll come across lost kingdoms of the Silk Road, mock meat, and the Inquisition. In the Middle Ages, the battle of ideas is not a metaphor. Vegetarianism, the story so far with Ian MacDonald. Episode 7, Heresies. After the offering service and the vegan communal meal, the deputy abbess sat down with me in the temple library. Can I ask you to pronounce your name so that I'm... Jie Yun. Jie Yun. Jie Yun. Jie? Jie? Yun. Yun. Both syllables rise in pitch. I'm, yes. I'm repeating that from my own memory. <laughs> so you're the, the venerable abbess of... I'm from the Foguangsan. Buddhism reaches China in the first couple of centuries of the Common Era, at the same time as Christianity is spreading in Europe. Like India or pagan Europe, China has myriad local gods, most of whom expect animal sacrifice. They're seen through a philosophical system called Confucianism that finds meaning in playing your part for family and society. The opposite of monasticism. To be ordained as a monk, to shave your head. Actually, at that time, it, is, it was quite shocking for the Chinese because according to our traditional idea, from the Confucianism, we cannot hurt or do any harm to our own body, including our hair. How dare you are to shave your head? It is from your parents. It means that you, you should disrespect to your parents. For the Chinese, it's very important to have children, to have next generations. So if you want to be ordained as a monk or as nun, it shows you do not show any respect to your family. In Confucian China, even the gods have to fit into the social order. This is Von Song Goussard. Yes, because most gods are part of a bureaucratic system. They have higher ups. These gods usually eat meat. 
When I was in Paris doing interviews about philosophers, you'll hear in later episodes, I cycled up a couple of hills to get to the neighbourhood of Epinette, where the Humanities Division of Le Centre National de Recherche Scientifique is based. So I'm uh, Vincent Gossard. I'm a historian of uh, Chinese uh, religions, especially Taoism. So Taoism developed uh, out of uh, much earlier traditions as an organized religion around the second century of the Common Era. And one of the things they did was um, reacting against the official religion of the empire that organized a massive amount of uh, state rituals uh, involving sacrificing animals. And so Taoism reacted against that, saying that uh, the pure gods of heaven don't eat meat, and as a matter of fact, they don't eat any food at all. They can be offered incense or maybe tea, flowers, pure things, but certainly not food and even less um, uh, meat. Pure, or jai, is another helpful concept. Without meat, sex or alcohol, to address the gods, you need to be jai. And everyone addresses the gods. Everybody who took part in like the, the annual village offering to thank the god for the, their protection and the good crops had to abstain for three days and be pure just to approach. Because if you had like 3,000 pure people and one people would just smell the bad smell of meat, then the god would still be hungry and not come. Right. So um, this notion has been there for many centuries before Taoism was organized as a religion and before Buddhism arrived. So that the motive is purity rather than Buddhist ahimsa, non-violence, there are Chinese concepts that Buddhists can leverage. There was already from a very early on the idea of purification, which was there, and which was used by the Buddhist and Taoists to say, let's not be pure just on certain days, but let's be pure all the time. But the Buddhists were extremely instrumental in expanding it widely and bringing new arguments to, toward the discourse against killing animals and eating meat. Well, the most potent one, of course, is the idea that to kill an animal is uh, a sin that you, you are going to be accounted for. And uh, they are, we have graphic descriptions of this in Buddhist texts, but then they very quickly spread around and we also have Taoist texts who talk about this, and we have pictorial records, and we have popular literature. And in that whole huge body of discourse on what happens to souls of people who have just died... The souls of people who died. Yeah, we, we, we do have descriptions of uh, animals coming just to large complaints about the people who have killed them, just to eat them, and lots of stories about this. This story is a vision experienced by an official who hunts and fishes of the gruesome punishment that awaits him in the afterlife. And I warn you, it is not subtle. A hundred odd people bound Zhizong and led him away. After many miles, they arrived at a stupa to which an assembly of monks was presenting offerings, just as in this world. You enjoy hunting and fishing. Now you will receive the retribution. Rizong was flayed in exactly the same manner in which animals are butchered. He was then thrown into deep water, 
hooked in the mouth, pulled out, sliced open and minced as sashimi is prepared. Then he was thrown into a hot cauldron and cooked, turned over three times. The pain was unbearable. Do you want to live? Please. Crouch down. The monk poured water over him, saying, One ablution will remove 500 sins. Three is enough. The monk pointed to some ants. Even these tiny creatures may not be killed. Of fish and meat, you may eat only from those animals that have died naturally. And on days of abstinence ceremonies, you must wear fresh clothes. At this point, Zhizong revived. Henceforth, he gave up fishing and hunting. And after all that, Zhizhong wasn't even told to be vegetarian. He's not a monk. And in any case, the Buddhism that entered China still tolerated meat. Monks and nuns were not vegetarian. Who stay in the temple, who are ordained, they are not vegetarian. They are not vegetarian. They can have meat. They can, they can they cook in the temple. So what happens to change this? Well, firstly, there's the stuff that happened to Indian Buddhism in the last episode. Mahayana Buddhism cohered. Buddhist universities like Nalanda opened. Texts emerged with an explicitly vegetarian message, like the Lankavatara Sutra, and they get carried by Buddhist monks from Nalanda to China. And secondly, there are people like Emperor Wu. From now on, after you have returned to your monasteries, each and every one of you shall restrain themselves in accordance with the Buddha's teachings. Should you still drink wine and eat meat and act contradictory to the Dharma, I shall have you punished according to imperial law. All those monks and nuns who wear the Buddha's robes but do not act according to the Buddha's path are falsely assuming the title of monk and differ not from thieves or brigands. In the late 5th and early 6th centuries, Emperor Wu of Liang is a devout Buddhist. He patronises Buddhism, he gives pro-vegetarian talks and writes an essay. He gathers senior monks and nuns to councils where he cites pro-vegetarian sutras like Lankavatara and asks awkward questions about vegetarianism. I like him. So there is the Emperor Wu of the Liang Dynasty. He was uh, in Chinese Buddhism. He was regarded as the Bodhisattva Emperor. He helps popularize the Bodhisattva precepts, minor versions of the monastic vows aimed at lay people. He takes them himself in 519. And with more lay people taking the precepts and going vegetarian, that increases the pressure on monks and nuns. Imperial patronage can come and go, but when Buddhists and critics alike expect it, the expectation that monks will be vegetarian ratchets up century by century. By the end of the millennium, yes, the meat-eating Buddhist monk is a fictional trope, but Buddhist hagiographies have gone from celebrating vegetarianism as an exceptional virtue to taking it for granted. And by that time, other groups have arrived in China and to understand them, we have to go back west. 
In the 7th century, Islam quickly spreads from North Africa to Persia because Islam's fasting tradition, Ramadan, is all or nothing. It's got no connection with vegetarianism, unlike its Eastern Christian citizens who, then as now, have periodic vegetarian and sometimes even vegan fasts. So to early Muslims, abstention from flesh, along with monasticism, is something other religions do. For example, this is the first account I can find of a Muslim being vegetarian. It's the 650s, barely 20 years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, and it's being used to imply that Basra's most respected preacher is dodgy. Umran came before the Caliph in Medina with a band of men who slandered Amir, saying he did not approve of marriage, eat meat or attend Friday prayer. Amir denies the rumours, except he'll admit to a compassionate vegetarian phase. The Caliph was informed that you would not eat meat, but I have seen you do so and know that people have lied about you. As for meat, you have seen for yourself. But I was a man who would not eat animals killed by butchers. Ever since I saw a butcher dragging a sheep to be slaughtered, then he placed a knife on its throat and repeated over and over, for sale, for sale, until it dropped dead. The Christian hermits of the Middle East from a couple of episodes ago do inspire some Muslim ascetics. A very few of them, like Ziad in the 8th century, are vegetarian though. The ascetics will evolve into mystics called Sufis, who will evolve into orders, some of whom will be vegetarian, but that waits another episode. In southern Iraq, there are a few interesting groups. You may also remember the Manichaeans, their vegan clergy called elect, how their European proselytizing lost out to what became mainstream Christianity. They follow the 3rd century Persian prophet Mani, who claimed to follow one from Jesus and Buddha, and the ancient Persian Zoroaster. So for Christians, they're heretical Christians. For Zoroastrians, they're heretical Zoroastrians. And so the Manichaeans were very much an underground movement at the beginning of the 7th century and having a quite difficult time. But Islam actually brings a, a, a fundamental change for the Manichaeans because at least initially for the first 100 years or so of Islamic rule, uh, Muslims were very tolerant of religious diversity under the Umayyads, and the Manichaeans were basically allowed to operate openly for the first time in centuries. Several Manichaeanism experts pointed me to Professor Jason Badoon of Northern Arizona University as the authority on Manichaean diet. So I broke one of my own rules and interviewed him via Skype. Like the Buddhist clergy, the elect hope their lifestyle will help them escape the cycle of reincarnation. The elect uh, committed themselves to be uh, without any kind of personal property. So they didn't have a home. They were celibate. And they were sworn to non-harm. So they could not kill. And in terms of their diet, they were vegans. Why do the elect follow a vegan diet? I mean, is it as simple as they believe in non-harm? The rule of non-harm is a very fundamental rule for the elect, but it's connected to an ideology underlying the whole religion, which is the sacredness of life. And what that means is that all things have a sacred divine energy in them, animals and plants both. And uh, for the Manichaeans then, Animal life is sacred not 
because of any treasuring of the animal form, but because of the life within it. The Manichaeans actually had a very interesting, detailed metabolic theory about how we take in life energy when we eat, and then we channel that energy into our actions. And calories and light particles and life energy are the same thing. They're all exactly the same thing for Manichaeans. But the job of the elect, the primary function of the elect, was to channel as much of these sacred light particles as possible out of the universe. And they can do that with eat, by eating plants, because the plant does not immediately die. It retains the light particles, and the elect can eat it, and through their disciplined bodies, channel this light to liberation. Presumably to heaven? Yes, that's all the light particles return to their source, which is God in heaven. This idea really reminds me of how some of today's raw foodists talk about, quote, living food. The elect completely depend on lay Manichaeans, and in return, they absolve the lay folk of their sins, including the sins committed supporting the elect. Most lay Manichaeans eat meat. It's permitted as long as they don't slaughter it themselves. And around 750, this new uh, Islamic regime takes over, which is much less tolerant of religious diversity, um, and begins to persecute the Manichaeans as dualists. Instead of one benevolent or powerful creator, dualists believe in competing powers of light and dark. For Manichaeans, the world is just a flawed product of the struggle between good and evil, the proverbial Manichaean conflict. The European heretics, we'll come to later, are also dualists, but staying in southern Iraq in the 10th century, a whole dissident Islamic community gets nicknamed Al-Baklia, the greengrocers, and that's down to just a single preacher with a message that's familiar to us from India, don't kill animals or eat pungent vegetables like onions. The historic record doesn't even tell us if he won them over. And southern Iraq's port city of Basra boasts a secret band of philosophers, the Brethren of Purity. They're inspired by Pythagoras and Neoplatonism, and they create an encyclopedia of all knowledge that includes in it a fable about other animals putting mankind on trial. The story is set on an Eden-like island where animals live in peace until humans arrive. The men pursued and hunted them, using all manner of devices to take them convinced that the animals were their runaway and rebellious slaves. When the cattle and beasts learned of this belief, their spokesmen and leaders gathered and came before Biwarasp the wise, king of the genies, to complain of the injustice and wrongs of mankind against them and to protest the human notions about them. It's a closely fought case. Different manuscripts have different and mostly ambiguous endings and... As amazing as it is, I can't say it's an explicit case for vegetarianism. But what of the Manichaeans? By the 10th century, their position is untenable in their southern Iraq homeland, and they flee. And thanks to their centuries of proselytizing, they have somewhere to flee to. It was a very fortuitous turn of events that exactly when they begin to be persecuted uh, in their homeland in southern Iraq, within a decade or so of that beginning, uh, their religion is adopted by uh, the leaders of the Uyghur steppe empire uh, in Central Asia. Their 
prince who goes on to become their Kagan is converted to Manichaeism. And so that turn of events is, is quite dramatic for the Manichaeans. And he has this very firm pronouncement about how he's changing his society. There's a couple of very interesting texts around this conversion of the Uyghurs uh, that involve um, a commitment that, in effect, the Manichaean leadership extracts from him. And so we have this fascinating text that refers to a land that, in which the air was formerly uh, filled with the smell of blood, becoming a land uh, where everyone eats vegetables. And if you can picture in your mind Mongolia and the difficulty of raising vegetables in Mongolia, you understand just what a commitment this was. And in fact, the Uyghur leadership does get a lot of resistance and the government uh, is overthrown. But then there were counter-revolutions where the Manichaeans came back in. So this went back and forth several times. We'll catch up with Manichaeanism in Asia later. غدوت مريض عقلي والدين فألقني لتسمع أنباء الأمور الصحائح. This poem advocates ethical veganism. It even reminds the hearer that bees do not make honey for humans. In Syria, Abul Allah al-Mari is one of the greatest poets of the early 11th century. He's a skeptic, an antinatalist who thinks the world is too cruel to bring children into, and most remarkably, an ethical vegan in pretty much the modern mold. I could go on about him for a whole show. And in fact, I did, back in 2012, with a bit of help from Benjamin Zephaniah. You can listen to it at theveganoption.org. Meanwhile, Christianity faces heresies that remind it of the Manichaeans, more abstemious, monastic-style groups that promise an escape from reincarnation. Remember, early Christian monks and nuns were close to vegan, but by the 6th century, the Roman Catholic monks and nuns only abstained from red meat. And as time goes by, there are exceptions and excuses from even that for meat broth or the abbot's table or meals in the infirmary. What we do find is some ordinary people, when they're angry with the establishment, denouncing priests and monks and friars and so on for the richness of their diets. John Arnold lectures in medieval history, particularly heresy, at Birkbeck in the University of London. We talked in a book-lined basement office with the traffic from Russell Square in the background, and I asked him about these itinerant ascetics who were putting the church to shame. Taking Europe as a whole, how would you sum up these dualist heretical movements, the Bogomols and the Cathars? They've got this core belief that there are two gods, so a good God who creates all spiritual things and a bad God who creates the physical world. They're um, arising not from existing religious institutions, but from an enthusiasm for an apostolic form of life. And they are a threat, at least they're perceived as a threat by the orthodox authorities in all places. In the 10th century, in the Byzantine Empire's Slavic frontier, a priest called Cosmos rails against the Bogomils. They appear pale from their hypocritical fasting. They do not utter vain words. They present themselves so that they may not be told apart from Orthodox Christians. We don't get details of their diet until the 12th century. They say that their righteousness exceeds ours because they teach what is truer and share a lifestyle which is more austere and pure, abstaining from meat and cheese and marriage and everything like that. 
The word just translated meat is ambiguous about fish, given what else we know, that clergy were probably either vegan or pescatarian, and out of purity rather than concern for animals. Um, the point about having a belief in two gods, a bad god who made this world, is you don't believe in hell, because this is hell. You already live in it. And particularly amongst the bad things that the bad world produces is anything that sex uh, is involved in. So if you have um, meat, or indeed if you have milk products, um, these are the product of sex. And for that reason, you might then say, well, we mustn't eat any of these things because they link us more strongly to the bad world, and you're, you're corrupted in that sense. Over in the West, in Reims, in 991, a new archbishop makes a very specific declaration endorsing meat, marriage and everything like that as if he was denying being a bogomil. An exchange of pastoral letters in the 11th century suggests continuing concerns over this heresy. Um, and he says in particular, don't rush around going overboard prosecuting people for heresy like some of those French people who accuse people of being heretics just because they look rather pale and they take the, their pallor to indicate that they've been fasting and the fasting to indicate that they're heretics. Given this, anyone can see how reprehensibly they behaved at Gosler when some members of this sect were captured. They were rightly excommunicated after much discussion of their beliefs for their stubbornness in heresy, but they were sentenced to be hanged as well. I have most diligently tried to find out what passed at this discussion and can discover no justification for the sentence except that the heretics refused to obey the order of the bishop to kill a chicken. Compare this to the caliphate who rooted out Manichaeans by challenging suspects to kill ants. By the 12th century, the people we now call the Cathars are an organised popular movement. Their wandering clergy capitalise on the anti-clerical feeling. They look like the apostles, you know, we're meeting people who look like uh, what they imagine, um, you know, Jesus and the apostles to have looked like. And the diet is one part of that. The ones called the Cathars fast for three 40-day periods in the year and fast three times a week and, and basically make it a big part of how they present themselves to the world. Add their fasts together and they follow a vegan diet most days of the year. But rather weirdly, the rest of the time, they eat fish. And the flesh of fish is different because it's spontaneously generated in water. Now that apparently rather odd belief is actually fairly widely held in the Middle Ages. It goes back, I believe, to Aristotle, who thought that certain kinds of animals were spontaneously generated from the environment they lived in, and that this was true of fish. So they're, they're enjoying real success and visibility in the early 13th century. And then Pope Innocent III calls a crusade against them. The crusade involves knights primarily from northern France, which we're saying northern and southern France, these are really two different countries in this period. It involves knights from northern France coming to the south, um, fighting uh, knights and townspeople in the, in the area, killing quite large numbers of them, and eventually subduing and dominating the south. So they capture Béziers, the city of Béziers, and they slaughter almost everybody there. And a slightly later text says that asked, uh, you know, how are we going to tell who are the, the heretics and who are the Christians? Arnold Amory, the, the papal legate, says, kill them all, God will know his own. So just get rid of everybody, put them all to the sword, and, you know, God will sort it out afterwards. He may not actually have said that, but it's certainly the case that very large numbers were killed there. 
The conquest enables an inquisition that tracks down the last Catharas, like these two fugitive women recorded in the registry of the inquisition. Arriving in a hotel, the hostess wanted to know whether they were heretics and gave them some live chicken, asking them to prepare them because she had stuff to do in town and left the house. At her return, she found the chickens still living and asked them why they hadn't prepared them. They answered that if the hostess would kill them, they would prepare the chicken well, but they wouldn't kill it. The hostess, hearing this, went and told the inquisitors that two heretics were at her place. They were arrested and burned. The Inquisition seized these heresies through the filter of the Manichaeans. One of the things that the church writers do is that they look back to Augustine. And in Augustine you find this set of ideas about Manichaeans and, and so on and so forth. The Bogomols persist in the Balkans until the Ottoman Empire takes over in the 14th century. But let's catch up with the real Manichaeans. 8th century Central Asia. Uyghurs had such influence over the Chinese government at the time because they basically saved the Chinese government from being overthrown. And so they extracted a lot of concessions from the government, including setting up Uyghur garrisons throughout China. And so that century of Uyghur dominance of China was very essential for spreading Manichaeism into China in a way that it hadn't been before. In the 840s, the Uyghur state fell to an invader. And shortly afterwards, the emperor of China banned foreign religions, including Buddhism and Manichaeanism. And at that time, then, uh, Electa rounded up and either exiled or executed. But at that moment, one of the elect manages to flee the Chinese capital and go into the south. And he manages to basically regroup the survivors and reorganize in southern China and give Chinese Manichaeism a whole second life. That's one impressive elect. It certainly is. And it is just one individual who, who guides that whole reorganization and reestablishment of Manichaeism. Buddhism recovers in China. By the end of the ninth century, it is part of the orthodoxy. From the late Tang onward, the dominant ideology is Sanjiao, three teachings. Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. They are all recognized by the imperial state as good orthodox teachings. Confucianism is given pride of place. Manichaeanism becomes one of China's many sects, outside those three orthodoxies, but heavily influenced by them. So more Buddhist influence, more Taoist influence. A lot of parallels are seen. The Taoists very interested in the metabolism of the body and diet and things like that. And so there's a lot of interconnections that are just naturally formed. In China, the prophet Mani is called the Buddha of Light. The connection to other lands is more or less forgotten or relegated to legend. And it becomes very much a part of the Chinese uh, religious landscape. By the 12th and 13th centuries, authorities see vegetarian sects like Manichaeans as rabble-rousers. They label them... Vegetarian demon worshippers! For ordinary peasants, their diet was mostly vegetarian anyway. And so the idea that they could be a kind of spiritual elite as a commoner if they followed these more restricted dietary practices that didn't really alter their life all that dramatically was a very inviting idea. And the demon worship part comes from the fact that these are not recognized accepted deities, according to the, you know, the, the main establishment. 
but supporting abstemious, unproductive elect proves more of a challenge. And gradually we see a shift towards lay control of the religion, lay control of the community, and the elect institution basically disappears. And the Chinese Manichaean lay people are basically doing the religion without the elect as much as they possibly can. And the rest of Chinese popular religion, the gods themselves have to decide whether to be vegetarian. And there are lots of stories, both in uh, early history and in, in modern history, and in actually in the present as well, where gods are being converted, as it were, <laughs> to vegetarianism and say that they should be honored by pure offerings only, and so they would be even more pure and powerful and, and uh, higher up the uh, the ladders of the divine bureaucracy if they did so. And then the god protests, they, they say spirit mediums and they tell people that that's not working and they need blood and meat so there's this 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 is this is going on and unfolding through history the ethic of being jai pure including vegetarian for short periods remains jia wen we have the habit of uh, for some of the the chinese they'll keep a vegetarian diet Two days a month, the new moon and full moon day. Many people who are religious to some extent would voluntarily, out of faith or respect or whatever you call it, abstain from meat and also alcohol and sex and, and, and onion and leeks and other things on certain days. But also at a more personal level, people would choose to eat vegetarian, and in some cases they would go to a vegetarian restaurant uh, on certain days, uh, like your own birthday or the birthday of your parents, out of respect for your parents, on the birthdays of certain gods as well. For instance, Bodhisattva Guanin, which is one of the most widely um, uh, worshipped uh, deity. Well, technically she is a Bodhisattva, we can call her. The Bodhisattva of Compassion. Yeah. yeah the more devout people would like extend that like for one week before right and then it's really your choice and the very interesting thing in, in this background theme that runs through whole of Chinese history but maybe not all but at least over the last two two thousand years is that on the one hand the the very vocabulary of purity is accepted by pretty much everyone the idea that being vegetarian is pure, it's better, it's more meritorious. You don't, you are not tainted by the sins of killing animals or having animals killed for you. But then there are forces that are playing against this, and one of the of those forces is that you need commensality. You you need to eat with people. You need to share people to share food with people. And that's that means sharing meat and wine. So it was respected but also considered as a kind of asocial practice. Whereas abstaining just on certain days was, was the norm. It's been the norm until the, uh, uh, just the 20th century. It influences surrounding cultures, Korea and then Japan. The first Japanese imperial edict against meat-eating is in 675. It's far from a blanket ban, addressing certain traps, certain farm animals during certain busy months. And it needs to be repeated, suggesting it was honoured more in the breach. 
Later edicts extend to all domestic land animals. As often happens when a vegetarian ethic meets a fishing culture, Japan makes an exception for eating fish and also whales. But by the end of the Middle Ages, Japan seems to be mainly pescatarian. So, passing more cells, where would the monks in that cell likely have be from? Nalanda was a very celebrated university, so you know, people from all over the Buddhist world would come and study here. China, uh, Korea, uh, Mongolia, Central Asian countries. You might remember last episode, we went to Nalanda University with Deepak Anand. For centuries, the scholar monks from China and Japan would take teachings back from the great Buddhist universities of North India. But even as Buddhism becomes part of the orthodoxy in China, Buddhism is declining in its homeland, dissolving into the Hindu sea of faith. Oxford University Indologist Richard Gombrich. And Buddhism seemed to be doing pretty well in India till about 9th century or so, roughly. I mean, getting towards the end of the first millennium AD, and then it's in decline. And there's a huge amount of controversy about what exactly the reasons were. But they were pushed as much as they left, so to speak. Um, there was a lot of persecution of Buddhists in the, towards the end, not only by Muslims, but also by Brahmins. Muslims started coming 11th century onward. They, um, sometimes they were not hostile to other people. Most of the time they were. It started, they started coming. What The major onslaught was in the 12th century, when they came with the army and they, they started attacking all this big establishment because monasteries were very huge. And they felt this was the perfect place for them to you know, set up military base. So they find it that they could reuse the wood, they could reuse the metal, they could reuse the you know, bricks, everything. It was surrounded by water bodies, so it was very good for you know, the horses. So it was a perfect place for you know them to settle. And moreover, these monks were all very conspicuous. You know, their heads were shaven and they had the colorful robes. So they would easily identify them and they would kill them. These monks, when they would see that these Turks are coming, they would go and hide in the jungle. It was all jungle everywhere. You know? So they would go in, into hiding. And when these raiders would go back, they would come back. Certainly, we know that for the uh, death knell for Buddhism in India, more or less, occurred around 1200 AD with a great deal of destruction of great monasteries, libraries, etc., by the Muslims. So if you travelled the world in the early 13th century, you might find the last of the Cathars, perhaps the final traces of Manichaeanism in the Uyghur Khaganate, perhaps the last elect amongst persecuted vegetarian demon worshippers in China, and the last few dozen monks in the ruins of Nalanda. So uh, this process continued for you know maybe 100 years, and by, 13th, uh, by 14th century, you know, this process came to its end. In 1341, the famed Moroccan traveller Ibn Battuta reports this Chinese request about a Buddhist temple in India. The king of China has sent valuable gifts with a request to build an idol shrine on the foothills of the Himalayas. It's a place called Samhau, to which the Chinese go on pilgrimage. The Muslim army of India had seized, destroyed and sacked it. The Sultan wrote a reply that under Islamic law, the request could not be granted, for permission to build temples was given only to those who accepted the infidel tax, adding, if you agree to pay it, permission to build a temple can be given. 
and the Sultan appoints Ibn Battuta ambassador to China. It's now China carrying the torch for Mahayana Buddhism, and it's thanks to Chinese scholar monks that the Buddhist sites I visited in North India were not completely forgotten. And that's not the only thing for which we have to thank Chinese Buddhist and Taoist vegetarianism. Tofu? Tofu. Tofu? Yes. Tofu? Yes. This, oh. is, this is just the most normal thing to you. It's yes, it's normal for us. Yes. Um, because it's um, part of Chinese culture to have tofu, mm-hmm. or bean curd product. <laughs> In China, if I tell people that I make tofu, it, it causes hilarity. Neil McLennan runs Clean Bean Tofu. He's my local tofu maker in Brick Lane in East London. The idea of a Westerner making tofu, the the assumption is all Westerners should be making lots of money. And making tofu is what you do if you're a farmer and you move to the city and you need some cash, you make tofu. In Japan, I get a lot more respect for tofu as a craft. It's, It's very different. Tofu's first recorded mention is dated 965, about an official who only eats it because they can't afford meat. But there's an ambiguous carving in the 2nd century tomb that could make tofu much older. In his production room, Neil showed me how he makes tofu, and he finds the carving very familiar. Each batch will get jugged in from here into the, into the cooker here. It doesn't look like a cooker, it looks like... Looks like a World War I mine. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So this sequence of soaking the beans, cooking them, filtering away the husk, curdling and separating the curds and whey, pressing it, that is the same as it's been for for one or two thousand years. Yeah, and and in fact you can actually see a picture from the Han dynasty of people doing exactly that. In that picture that I'm talking about, they use the traditional stones to grind, um, and they would use a fire to cook. Um, the filtering would be a big cloth that it's hung on a frame, and it's just basically like, like you see people filtering jam, same kind of process. It might not have started as a meat substitute for mere mortals, but it definitely became one for deities. Uh, even in the early modern period, certain families just sacrificed to their ancestors with tofu. It's quite interesting. <laughs> and, and tofu in that case is very clearly a substitute, right? Mock meat using bean curd or wheat gluten were mentioned as early as the 6th century. Neil? They, u- they often use yuba. Yuba is the skin of the milk. So if you simmer soy milk, just like with dairy milk you get a skin forming on the surface and they'll peel that off and dry it um, and that will often be rolled into a, like a tube and sliced and that's supposed to be resembling meat you, you, you go to if you go to a certainly the Buddhist temple I remember in Chengdu they have it was in a lovely courtyard in an old temple and they'd have a huge menu board at the entrance and it was all meat dishes the, the names, it's all written as meat dishes, but you know there's no meat products there at all. There's a lot of comment about how realistic it is. In this 16th century novel, it's a lady's birthday party, a food break after some Buddhist nuns have given a recital, and Aunt Yang is, at the moment, Jai. Won't you have a little something to keep our tormentors company? I mustn't. I've had enough to eat already. And 
take this dish of pork ribs away. I'm worried I might get some into my mouth by mistake. My good lady, this is mock non-vegetarian food sent over from the temple just now. Eat as much as you like. It won't do you any harm, so long as it's really vegetarian food. I'll have some of it. My eyes must really be deceiving me. I was sure it was meat. Every so often, some meat-eating comic proclaims that vegetarians shouldn't be allowed to mock meat. In medieval China, this is a live moral issue. There were writers who argued for um, the fact that if you're going to eat vegetarian, then it should look like what it is. It should be plain, cooked vegetables, not very fancy things that look like duck and taste like duck. That's that for some of those writers that beats the moral purpose <laughs> of, of eating pure food. Tofu, we prefer. Oh, the the fat meat, we do not like it at all. But some of them, sometimes we will have to use that. Because for beginners, they prefer <laughs> the meat. <laughs> so we have to have some dishes with some kind of uh, mock meat, mock fish. By the end of the Middle Ages, both South and East Asia have distinctive vegetarian cultures. But both Christianity and Islam view vegetarianism with a bit of suspicion. And in India, empires and colonies that follow those religions increasingly appear. Neither culture's ideas about vegetarianism are going to remain the same when they're this close and personal. And next episode, we go back to India to find out how. With the voices of Sandeep Garcha, Chetan Patek, Selvaras Lingham, Jeremy Hancock, William Blanchard, and Anyasa Shaban. And the music of Rob Masters, Clank Beale, the London Uyghur Ensemble, and others. Follow on Facebook and Twitter.com slash vegan option and discover more at veghist.org. Since the last episode came out, I've added an interactive timeline to the main veghist.org page. And I've written for the Vegan Society to mark the birthday of their founder, Donald Watson, a blog post about why it's so important for us to remember our history and, and to record the history that we're making now. If you like this series, and I'm guessing you do if you've listened this far, please do get the word out. Review on iTunes or your podcast provider, share it on Twitter and Facebook, embed the SoundCloud player on your blog and tell your friends. It's taken me many months of unpaid work, so please do spread the word if you think it's worth it. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>